Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to another episode of the Buffalo Happy Hour. Mike, what's up? Derek, we're back at our friend's Addie's, and we're sitting down with a man who knows way more about wine than we do. I feel like it's been a while since we've been here. It has. This used to be our second home. We were here like every other week. I saw you in stuff. here. Oh, I yeah. saw you. So no what's doubt. going on? How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. How about you guys? Good, good, real good. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you being on our show. Uh, you want to start by introducing yourself, your, your title per se? Um, sure, sure. Okay. Uh, again, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. I'm Jim Curry, the sommelier here at Addie's Fine Wine and Spirits. I've been here for a couple of years. I'm a retired school teacher, and I decided I wanted to go back to school, so I went back to sommelier school. And here I am today, working for very good friends of mine. Happy oh, to be here. That's awesome. Yeah. So when did you start teaching? I started teaching in 1975, so I taught for 37 years, retired, <laughs> and then I, my wife was out to a fine restaurant one night, and a sommelier served her. And she said, Jim, when she got home, you've got to get into that field. Because I love wine, mm-hmm. and I, I love people, and I'm a teacher. So sure enough, I, we sat down and talked about it, the finances, the time commitment, mm-hmm. and uh, I decided to go back to school <laughs> at 64 years old. <laughs> so I did it, and I went for a year of study to the New York Wine and Culinary Institute, which is on Canandaigua Lake. And I had a tremendous teacher there. She was a phenomenal teacher. Uh, got my level one certification from the Master of Master Sommeliers of North America, And then I went and did two more levels with the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust, which is an international wine association. And then I got another one from the Guild of Sommeliers. And uh, I think I'm just going to be a lifelong learner at this point. And it's (laughs) awfully fun to learn about wine. There's really no end to the good times. Absolutely. So when you were a teacher, did you, like, live through that aspect? And you're like, I'm teaching these kids, but no one's teaching me. And then that's kind of what drove that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was fun. I was an elementary school teacher for a long, long time, taught every grade level, every specialty, and I always wanted to work with adults, mm-hmm. and I love the kids, but I thought, and I did do adult training, uh, paraprofessional stuff for the school district I was in to train teachers on how to do different things, and I thought, wouldn't this be more fun if wine was involved? <laughs> so that's what kind of made me say, I've got to do something with it after I retire, and Lou and uh, Kristen had been good friends of mine for many, many years. All four of their kids went through my elementary school. And my wife is also a school teacher there. Between the two of us, we had all four kids wow. in school. So we have known the Malones for decades. And we've always shopped with them. Uh, their reputation is incredible in this community. Everyone loves them in this community. And I thought, I want to work there someday. I never thought I'd work here as a sommelier. I thought I'd be behind the cash register. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, um, it, the timing was great. The last person they had teaching their classes left. They had a vacancy. I came in a couple of years ago and did a couple of practice nights. Fell in love with the place. As you can see, we have this beautiful tasting room here. It's magnificent. And it was a wonderful way to start. Uh, we do PowerPoint presentations of different wines based on theme and, and varietal and so forth. And we do them all the time now. And we get the usual customers every single time. And it's great to see them all. It's great. <laughs> so, uh, real quick, it was public school, correct? Or was it private? It was public school right public here school. in Williamsville. Very nice. Okay. Yeah. So, you transition, um, and then your first level or certification, per se, let's, I have a ton of questions on actually getting certified. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I know that there's, you would think it starts kind of small, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling it gets 
unbelievably ridiculous. So it's hard. So so the first level. Um, hard. What's the first level like? Um, from what we understand, it's basically like you need to know someone who can provide a lot of wine because it's a bunch of tastings, and then you're starting to understand the the it names, is. I guess. Uh, it's incredibly complicated. Again, I went for a year. I, I drove uh, a weekend a month for a year there, and then in between that, we had virtual lessons Monday through Friday. And it's not just the tasting. It was studying all the topography, the geography, chemistry, fermentation, history of different countries, wine regulations, how to store wine, how to save wine, how to, how to make wine, all these things. So the tasting part was kind of the fun part, but it truly is something you have to practice a lot. When I went to Psalm School, every morning by 10 o'clock, we had 40 wines. We tasted 40 wines. And by noon, we had another 40. And that's when you learn to spit. Right. You know, you know, cannot drink that kind of stuff and stay sharp, so you just swirl and, and spit. And that was a big part of it. Um, but you also have to be able to do that at home. So you have to have lots and lots of access to wine to be able to do that. And, uh, but that was actually the easiest part. The hardest part were the textbooks, just learning the geography and, and regulations and history and all the varietals in the world. And there are 3,000 new bottles of wine being produced every day in this world. And you have to keep track of that. And they just go on forever and ever. And so it's an incredibly complicated thing. I'd never studied that hard in my life. And uh, I, I was working, I was retired at the time, so I'd go home. I'd start studying at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'd study every day till 5 o'clock during the week. And then I'd go to the sommelier school on weekends. And uh, it was so intense, so intense. And everyone in the class was in the business. They were all wine stewards. They were restaurant managers, bartenders. I was the only one that was a school teacher. And uh, so that was one thing that set me back. I always loved wine. And I had lots of wine and t- loved going to wineries. I've been to many, many wineries for, for the last 40 years. But it's another thing when you're given a textbook and have to know all these facts and regions and regulations. It's incredibly intense. So for a year out of my life, it was like I was back doing my dissertation at UB in my master's program. It was even worse. And that was level one which is the easiest of four levels. And the master level is level four, and there are only 249 master sommeliers in the world. There have been more people that have gone to outer space than have made the master som program. Wow. Ever in the history of this country. And you passed? Yeah, I'm level one. I'm the lowest of those four levels. I passed, yeah, I passed with honors first time for level one. Gotcha. I got a near perfect score. But then I left the court of master soms, I finished the program, and I decided I wanted to go and try another, another avenue to get certified. So there's another international wine association called the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust out of London, England. And they offer coursework as well at the New York Wine and Culinary Institute. So I decided I'm going back. So I went back the next year and did their level one and then stayed and did their level two. So I have two levels in WSET, which is the acronym for it. And that has been very helpful. And then I went for more training with the Guild of Master Psalms, which is out of uh, Napa. And uh, my question is, where do I go from here? Mm-hmm. I have a couple of great options. I can go back to the Quarter Master Psalms and work on the Level 2, which I've already started doing. Or there's a certification in Napa where you get certified as a Napa instructor of wine. And then you're certified to take wine groups around, very affluent wine groups around, and spend the days with them. And, it's a nice position to have. And Napa is my favorite place in the world, so I wouldn't mind living there part-time. Absolutely. So speaking of the certification process itself and kind of comparing it, Mike and I are certified bourbon stewards, Mm -hmm. and there is very few organizations that – Actual recognize actually recognize that as a national certification. Mm-hmm. When it comes to wine, there's much more. So, what was your research like when you first started getting into this? And you're like, which direction do I even go? Right. First thing I did was I went to a couple different restaurants where I found out they had Psalms working mm-hmm. there, and I made sure I got a chance to talk to them. And I said, "What is your training?" Because there are so many different avenues to get certified. There are weekend courses that. Mm-hmm. Some managers send their waiters to for a weekend, and that's it. And it, it's, I didn't want that. I wanted the one that was on the TV show, The Top Psalm. It's a show on Netflix where these follow these two guys through their path, and they almost commit suicide. It's so difficult. But, <laughs> it, but the Court of Master Psalms is the highest certification in the world for wine people. And okay. so that's the one I wanted to do. So that's why I started out with the court 
and went that way. But it was after talking to a lot of Psalms, ones that had that certifications and one that didn't. Sure. And I, I, if I, at my age, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to jump in with both feet. Mm -hmm. And that's why I went with the court. And I'm so glad I did. I, I was blessed with an extraordinary instructor and learned so much. And to this day, I had the honor of actually co-teaching a wine seminar with my instructor. Really? And that was a real treat in this room. So that was a real special treat for me. Is there a resource group or something or a group of New York wine sommeliers in the area? There are. There are. And uh, they're all part of the uh, American Wine Society, the okay. AWF. And we actually host meetings in this room where we will pick a theme. Like we, the last time they were here, we did Australia. And I did a night of Australian wines. And we sit around, we talk about the wines, I do a presentation, and then we share stories. And just it ends up being a beautiful happy hour with people that are also in love with wine. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a nice, great road. And I, I mean, I don't really know what else you would want to do, especially if you're essentially retired. You know, you just hang out, talk wine, learn wine, and it enjoy is. wine. It's a blessing. It really is. And being a school teacher, I love to impart knowledge. And mm -hmm. now I get to do it with adults with wine glasses in their hand. Right. How do you beat that? Right. Now, so. now, how has this morphed your house? I mean, has your collection just become ridiculous? Do you have a collection? I do. I do. And it's a, very similar to the fine wine room over there, but not, not quite as good. But I've, when I host a party at my house, it's a small informal dinner. I bring out really special wines. Mm -hmm. I had a birthday party for my wife. We had three couples there. And we had five wines, and one of which was a 1966 Chateau Mouton Rothschild Bordeaux. And that's not worth hundreds of dollars. That's worth thousands of dollars. And we had that together. We talked about the history. I'm such a nerd that I actually made everybody watch a video <laughs> first before I served the wine. They have to appreciate it. They did. And, and they had no idea what they were getting. And so I did this beautiful video. And they also had, there was a, a contest in 1976, before you guys were born, called The Judgment of Paris, where the best 10 wines of France were compared with the best 10 wines of the United States. It was set up by a, a, a writer from London, England. And everybody thought the French were going to just crush the Americans. And it was a blind tasting. All the judges were French. And they went through the whole thing, and the American wines crushed the French wines. Really? A top winner in both the reds and white from Napa Valley. And overnight, all of a sudden, Napa was not just this little farm field. All of a sudden, it was the best topography in the world for wine. And so that's what brought Napa its name, is that, that beautiful uh, Judgment of Paris victory. So that night I was talking about before with my wife, I also had the winning Chardonnay and the winning Cabernet Sauv from the Judgment, too. And we served those as well that night. So it was like a Super Bowl of wines for these people. And then I started it out with a Dom Perignon, a, a 2008 Dom Perignon. Where do you find yeah. these, though? Yeah. In our fine wine room. <laughs> I do. I do. No. Some of them, like the Bordeaux, there's quite a story behind that. They're very rare. 1966 Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. Chateau Mouton Rothschild is probably one of the two most prestigious wine houses in the world. And we couldn't find one. I wanted to get one from 1966 because it's my wife's birthday. That's the, the, mm -hmm. the year she was born. I thought, how beautiful. They had a 54-year-old bottle of wine. And it took Tyler and I actually Tyler more than me, about eight months to find one because they're very difficult to find. And sure enough, he found a, a vendor who found one outside of New York City somewhere, and he literally drove the bottle up to Buffalo for me. And, uh, and it was a real treat for me to just take a look at that bottle and know the history behind that mm -hmm. bottle and then to try and open it without destroying the cork, which is a very, it's like brain surgery when you get a, a bottle of wine that old to try and open it, not to destroy the cork. So we did that, and we had uh, those, all those wines in one night to celebrate her birthday, and it was an extraordinary night that we'll never forget. I still have all the bottles from that night. But uh, getting back to your question about the wine cellar, um, I do not have a wine cellar per se that is the beautiful cedar woods and all that. I use rolling craftsman toolboxes, the big toolboxes, because they are, once you put them in position and you line them, you can put the bottles in there on their side, which they have to be, and then I close it. They're in the dark. They're in a cold basement, and they're never moved. So it's actually a fabulous place to store red wines. And so when people come over, I say, do you want to see my wine cellar? And I take them down to my wood shop, and I pull it open my doors, <laughs> and there's the, the Don Perignon. It's, uh, it's funny, but it works for me. I, I wish I had a wine cellar, but I don't. But I have a 
a nice collection down there, and then I have a red collection up in my dining room that I actually run wine seminars virtually from there. And then I have a, a collection of whites as well in the kitchen. So That's incredible. Now, you mentioned the cork. Mm-hmm. Um, I butcher... I can never, I, I mean, we joke all the time. I literally could never go to med school, but <laughs> I've butchered a ton of corks. There's a lot of reasons why you couldn't go, not just <laughs> correct, as... Correct, correct. <laughs> um, but we always make the joke, it's good fiber, just drink it, it's good for you. But when there's like little speckles on the cork, how did you navigate something from 66? Very carefully. I studied on it first, and then I talked to a couple of winemakers in France who had bottles. And I talked, how do you do this? How do you do this? And what they did was there's a, a tool called an asso, which it has two arms. Instead of the corkscrew, there's a tool that you push in and the arms go down the side of the bottle on the inside and they wedge up against the cork. And then you slowly have to twist the cork out using the asso. And it's a very, very slow process. It took me 20 minutes moving that cork ever so slowly because I wanted that cork. Mm-hmm. I wanted it intact because I wanted it to be part of a shadow box I was making. And I did get it out, and uh, it's amazing that I did. I, and I videotaped myself doing it. And then uh, I, I looked at the cork, and it was totally black on the inside, which is fine because the wine oxidizes over time. You know, they, a cork is a beautiful way to seal a beautiful wine because oxygen goes through the cork, and that helps the wine age. You don't want too much, just the right amount. And for some reason, cork is the perfect way to disseminate just as much oxygen as should be in there. So I open it up. I carefully put it on the side, and big moment. Um, you have to. I put it in a decanter because it is 54 years old, and there's sediment. What happens? The natural process of aging and fermentation creates sediment that sits on the bottom, and they're, they're little crystals. So I had a decanter out there, and I have a filter that fits on top of the decanter, and I ever so slowly poured it out and got the entire bottle into the decanter. Of course, I had to try a little sip. I couldn't wait for the guests. I had to try some, because sometimes you'll get a bottle that old, and it's a skunker. Mm -hmm. It's just pure vinegar. If it was not stored the right way, if it was stored in the light, if it was stored where there's movement, if you have a cheap wine fridge that rattles all the time, that'll kill your wine. So it's it's a gamble when you get one like that, but... Uh, it was great. And the funny thing about red wines is as they age, they turn dark or lighter, like a light, light red. And as white wines age, they turn darker. So they'll go from yellow to brown. And so this had been, this is really light for Bordeaux. Bordeaux's are pretty red. And this turned out to be not quite like a rosé, but on the lighter, lighter red side. So immediately I tried it and it was still good. It was, it was not exceptional, but it was really, really good. And it was a different taste than a Bordeaux that we would take off the shelf tonight. Were you relieved when it tasted good? I was so relieved. That (laughs) just would have crushed me. And that was a gamble. But when you buy a wine like that, you trace the history of where it was for the last 54 years. That's called the provenance of wine. And you're giving documentation that says where this wine is from. So it was shipped over from Bordeaux in 1966. Ended up in New York at a vendor there. He sold it to a private collector in Connecticut, and he had it in his cellar. He was a wine expert, so he knew how to take care mm-hmm. of it. And then he, when he died, it went to an estate in Manhattan, and that's where the vendor from our place got a hold of it and brought it up here. So I know exactly the path that it went through from the winery in France to uh, my living room. This is like Ancestry.com for wine. No, it's, 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 it's a chain of evidence. Yeah. Yeah, that's fat. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, you kept saying it's a gamble, i.e., meaning there's if it's bad, you're out all the money. You are, and you can't do anything about it. No, you can't. And to that point too, you can't even package it back up to resell it because it's already open. <laughs> no, once so it's open, done. all bets are off. Yeah. So you yeah. you essentially spend a couple grand for a piece of glass. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> and you could return it if you didn't open it. Right. Uh, so when you look at the bottle, like we had images. Uh, that we looked on, online on this bottle. And you have to look at the, the serial number to make sure it's not counterfeit, because counterfeit wine is a big thing right now, a real big thing, because you're talking tens of thousands of dollars for some old Bordeaux. So you're checking serial numbers, you're checking the label to make, it's like looking at an old baseball card. You know how you have the dog ears on the side of the baseball card that ruins it? Same thing with a wine label. So I went in a nice clean label, and over time the wine evaporates, so it goes down in the bottle, if it goes down too much in the bottle, past the shoulder, 
then that's, it's out of balance and it's not going to be a good wine. So I had to check out all these things first before I ever purchased it. And then you pray that it gets here from New York to Buffalo. And it did. It did. So it's, That's shocking. Yeah. Crazy journey. I didn't know any of that. Crazy journey. So that's all readily available? Like yes. information for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and you can call the winery, like a world-famous winery, like Chateau Rothschild, and you can give them the serial number, and they will tell you what bins it came from, where the grapes came from, what field it came from. They have like 35 different fields with different types of Cabernet saw based on elevation, drainage, irrigation. And they can trace right where those grapes came from. And I did that. And it was just absolutely fascinating to do it. You had to be a wine geek, I guess, to appreciate it, but it was extraordinary. I, I mean, not really. Wow. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. And oh, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not a wine crazy. geek. I just think it's crazy that that's a thing. It is. And, you know, people buy those wines for investment. So right. These guys on Wall Street buy lots of those wines. So they have to be very well versed in the provenance of the wine, the history mm-hmm. of the wine. And so people do make a lot of money buying and selling wine. A lot of money. Yeah. So to that point, you open this bottle. Mm-hmm. Do you have a collection that you're just not opening? Or I no? do. Okay. I do. I have wines. Some wines are better if they're aged 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Usually they're very bold red wines that have lots of tannin. And mm-hmm. Tannin is the thing that comes from the skin of grapes, and it creates a chemical called polyphenol, and that's nature's preservative. So you buy a, a full-bodied Barolo or a Cab Sauv or anything like that, and then based on the grape, you determine how long you want to save it for. I have a couple of Barolos from Italy that will be perfect in 25 years. I bought them 10 years ago, and I have marked open in 2031, things like that. So every wine has a time that it peeks out in. Mm-hmm. So you have to make sure you have, you're ready to drink that wine, or it does peak out. And I have two that will be up due this year. Do you, have, do you use an app? There's an app that you can use? There are apps and for then, everything yeah. in wine. Everything. <laughs> yeah. they, there's an app. You, you punch in a vineyard, and they'll tell you what the vintage years were, their best years that they made grapes. And they'll tell you what years to avoid. And if you're an investor in wine, you need to know those. It's mm-hmm. critical because it, it could break the bank if you bought the wrong wine. It really could. It's a whole other field, though. I, I collect wine collecting. It's a fabulous yeah. field. I love how happy he is right now. Uh, I know. That's fun. How can you not be fun about this? We should be having a glass while we're doing right? this. That's what we should have done. So There's when, still time, yeah. my friend. Okay. There's still time. When you were studying, mm-hmm. what was the most difficult region to grasp? Probably France. Oh, Probably my God. France. Me, would be like all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the reason the old world is a lot harder than the new world, old world being anything in mm-hmm. Europe, is mm-hmm. when you go to a wine store and you buy a California Chardonnay, it says Chardonnay in the label. It doesn't say that when you go to France. All the wines are labeled by region, mm-hmm. not grape. So you get a Sancerre um, you, and all the different regions. So you have to know what is good in that region. So we had to learn a lot of stuff in French and then how it translates into the U.S., and also their regulations are very different and what they require a full varietal grape to be. In France, you have to have 80% of the main grape in that wine to call it a Sancerre. In the United States, and then they fill the rest with blends, they're fillers. Mm-hmm. In the United States, it's only 75%. So if you go to Napa and you get a beautiful Pinot Noir, or let's say a Cab Sauv, that would be even better from Napa. You get that and it says Cab Sauv on the label, it is guaranteed to be 75% Cab Sauv grape, and the rest will be Petit Merlot, uh, Petit Syrah, I mean, Merlot, maybe some Malbec and things like that. So, And in addition to that, Napa has other rules that says if it has Napa on the label, 100% of the grapes must be from the, re- the county of Napa. So there's the regulations were very mm-hmm. difficult as well as the regions. It was a lot more technical than I ever thought it would be. I just thought we'd drink wine, talk about the wine, and <clears throat> identify the senses. And, you know, and there's hundreds and hundreds of different things you can pick up in wines mm-hmm. in terms of herbs and fruits and minerals <clears throat> and things like that. And, but it was the, I had seven textbooks, seven textbooks that I had to read and learn. And I used to color maps at home to memorize regions. And just insane. And I'm, and I'm at the lower end of the level. The right. level four people, they're walking dictionaries. I, they're just extraordinary. So is 75% that magic number? In, in California and the United States. Okay. Yes. Oregon, they upped that to 80%, I believe. So it's, but 75 is pretty much it here. Okay. It really is. And like I said, the old world is 80%. So they're a little bit stricter than we are. Now, for those curious, um, you mentioned level four, they're like dictionaries. Can you 
vaguely describe each level. Like mm-hmm. level one, you're it's kind of understood. You would know this. Level two, you would know this, and so on and so yes. forth. Yes, level one, uh, you have to know every region, every country, every varietal, every process of fermentation. Uh, you have to know, be able to identify wines by drinking them. Uh, then you go to level two. It's all that and a lot more. Uh, you have to get into sub-regions in each region and then sub-appellations within each region. So you'll have to know almost the smallest fields in, around the world. And then, from what I understand, the hardest part is the blind tasting part, where you are given some reds and whites, and you have to identify the varietal, the region, the country, the grape, uh, the appellation, um, the acid, acid level, the alcohol level, for all, the, for all these wines. And that takes so much practice. It's practice... But it's fun, but mm-hmm. it's still very hard when you consider there are about 750,000 different bottles of wine in this world. And to get there in front of a master and try and do this has got to be nerve-wracking. We took our written exam for level one in front of three master psalms who were our instructors for the weekend, the final weekend. And it was such an honor. Two of the three I had were in Wine Spectator's Top 100 Wine People of the World so we've had, it's like playing basketball with Michael Jordan. Right. I'm with these guys, and I had my picture taken with them, and I had, I had my autograph, my diploma. I mean, such a geek. <laughs> such a geek. It's all good. It's all good. But that, and that was just level one. And a lot of people did not pass. We had 80 people in my class. Probably two-thirds failed. No kidding. Yeah. And these are people in the business. Mm-hmm. There's a person here in Western New York who owns two restaurants and didn't pass. And she owns two wine bars, and she could not pass. So it's a challenge. It's challenging. It's a challenge. And it's not just the wine knowledge, but it's the service. Mm-hmm. We had to know exactly how to serve a table of eight people, and the sequence for the wine, the, who gets the, the wine order right, who, you know, you have to do all these different things. And when you're doing the dummy practice, you have eight of your fellow colleagues at the wine school, and the master is at the table, too, and you're sitting there trying to properly serve the three or four wines that they've asked for. And they have to do it in the proper sequence. And then to confuse you, they start talking to you and badgering you and asking you questions. And you're trying, you have to give them eye contact, but you also have to pour the wine at the same time mm-hmm. to the right person in the right order. And so the service part was very challenging because I was not a server. I was a teacher my whole life. So that was a challenge to learn that. But now it's a very enjoyable thing to do. When I host a private party, birthday party, I love doing the service now. Because it's such a big part of the celebration. Sure. Now, serving wine. Mm-hmm. Humble beginnings for me. Mm-hmm. So I went to a nice restaurant uh, pretty much for the first time as like mid-20-year-old dude. Mm-hmm. I'm used to like butt heavies and, <laughs> you know, or like a blue moon with a steak, right? <laughs> so somebody orders a bottle of wine for the table. Server comes over and then they let you like smell it. And then you have to uh, like taste it, and then you approve it, and right. then they pour it. Right. I have no clue <laughs> what's going on. So I'm sitting there like, why? Like, what is it? Like, just pour the wine. Like, well, we want to drink the wine. And they're like, no, no, this is just how it is. Can you please explain <laughs> why that's it, a thing? It is very important. And you are probably like 99% of the general public when they go to a fine restaurant. They, you hope to guide you a waiter that can help you out. Because there's so many components to choosing the right wine and serving the right wine. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go to Russell's and have their beautiful steak, right off the bat, you're going to have a full-bodied red. There's a whole concept of pairing the right wine with the right food. And that is, goes with every wine and every food. And you have to know all that. As a psalm, you have to know it instantly. When somebody's at the table and you know what they're going to have, and if they ask for a suggestion, well, you're having fish here, I would suggest a white wine, something lighter. Sir, you're having the filet. I would suggest a, a Barolo or a Capsov. And, and then he asked you like dry or sweet and things like that. And then when you get a consensus from the person that's ordering the bottle, you know, you talk to him and say, you know, are you talking? Would you like, you like a full body wine? Do you like a, a touch of fruit in it? Do you like high alcohol wine? And you feel them out at fine dining places. This mm-hmm. is. If you went to Napa, this is how you'd be served. And then you suggest something to him. Sir, I'm going to suggest a California Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, 2016 vintage, which is very smooth, uh, heavily tannin, and high alcohol. Will go really well with the juicy steak you've ordered. They say, okay. Now, they can say, can you bring me a sample? And you bring them a sample. Even if it's an expensive wine, if they want to taste it, I I gladly bring it. Mm -hmm. But they normally don't. 
because they're too nervous about ordering a bottle of wine. So you bring the bottle, and they do you do a presentation. You hold the bottle in front of them. You have a servette, which is a washcloth. It like looks like a washcloth. You cradle it in the washcloth. You're not supposed to touch the bottle. So you talk to them about the wine, and you explain, this is it. You tell them the vintage. You tell them the denomination. You tell them the appellation, all the information about the wine. And if he nods his head, okay, then you take it back, and you very carefully take off the foil on the capsule. And you have to take it off at a certain place. If you take it too high, scraps of the foil could fall in to the wine. And some of the foil contains tin. You don't want that. So you very carefully take two cuts with your cutter, take that, put it in your pocket, and then you have what's called a a corkscrew. We call it a a waiter's helper. And you very carefully put that down, and with two motions, you bring it up. And again, you present the cork to him, to his left, and he'll, if he wants to, people sometimes pick it up and sniff it. That's not really an advantage. There's no advantage to that. Uh, you're basically looking to see if the cork is tainted, but if it's black. And gen- if it has black streets on the back, on the back, going down the side, you say, send it back and get a different bottle. And they would happily do that. So you presented the cork, and then you pour him a very, very short sample. And he, normally they would swirl it, they would smell it, they would look at color, and they would sip it. And then if they liked it, they would nod yes. You don't fill his glass then. You go to the first female to your left and fill her glass. Go clockwise, filling all the females, and then you do all the males, and then you come back, and the host gets served last. You fill up his glass. And then you present the the bottle of wine. If it's a white, it should be in a bucket. If it's the red, you put it either in a basket or a little silver tray next to him, uh, or an adjacent table if he doesn't want it on that table. And that's how the process goes all night. And you start with light wines. A lot of time you'll go to medium-bodied wines with dinner and then dessert wines. People want a, what's called a fortified wine, which is like a port or a Madeira mm. or a sherry, which are high-octane wines. They're like 18 to 20% alcohol. Or people like to have a, a birthday cake or a sweet thing, and then you give a dessert wine to them. And you explain the key to the dessert wine is having the dessert wine be sweeter than the dessert. Otherwise, it washes out the wine. So you have to know all these different wines in the proper sequence based on their needs and the food in front of them. And that's the concept of service that you learn on your sommelier. So that's fascinating <laughs> that you just recited the entire process. And I felt like I was eating dinner. But the if you get into this position, maybe, well, even you here at mm-hmm. the liquor store, mm-hmm. if someone comes up to you and says, I'm going to have a steak tonight and I want a white, Mm-hmm. Do you like how far do you push them and be like, listen, this is not going to be good? <laughs> I I really listen hard. I think one of the abilities Assam has to have is he has to be a good listener. This guy may like a white wine, but he may like a heavy, full-bodied white wine. He might like a Vanier or a, a Chardonnay. A heavy-bodied white wine, worst-case scenario, will hold up to a steak, but not like a Barolo or a Cab Sauv or a Petit Syrah. But if, he's got to, if he just doesn't like red wines or his wife just doesn't like red wines, then you have to provide an alternative. And the alternative would be, how about a lighter-bodied wine, so like a Pinot Noir? And if he still says no, then you back off and you go to fuller-bodied whites. Mm-hmm. And the whites have a whole scale. You have to know the sequence of lightest body to fullest body. They start with Sauvignon Blancs and Chenin Blancs, which are very light and clear. And then they go to those Vanniers and those Chardonnays, which are golden brown up here. So if I have a customer that is going to have a steak. I want him to have a wine that's going to be able to sink his teeth into with that steak. And if he's going to stick to wines that are white, I'm going to give him the fullest body white I can find. Gotcha. That's fascinating. We need to have wine. <laughs> I did not under, I did not know any of that. Like the whole proper way of doing things. It's amazing. Uh, the, the sequencing for sparkling wine is extraordinarily difficult to present a sparkling wine the same way. And People think that you're supposed to hear that cork pop when mm-hmm. you serve that wine. You never hear the cork pop. If a sommelier is opening your sparkling wine, all you hear is this. That's all you hear. And that's the way it's supposed to be. You don't want to lose the beautiful gases and carbonations right. of that champagne. So, And it's always done. His hand always covers the top of the servette, that cloth, and he rotates the champagne from the bottom. That gives you more control. And you always make sure it's aimed away from your guests, <laughs> unless you don't like your guests. Right. And it's a whole beautiful tradition. Uh, at first, it's hard to do, but after a while, you savor it, and you enjoy doing this whole process with people. And people love the service. They look at you like, wow, 
I really appreciate you taking such care with the wine we just ordered. Mm. And it's a, it's a feel good all the way around. Feels good for me, feels good for them. But the cool part about that too is they follow the same process for somebody like yourself going out to dinner that's going to order a more expensive wine and then me who's going out to dinner that's ordering a 35 bottle yes $35 bottle of wine they're following that same process like it is a delicacy which speaks to the culture of a sommelier so do they teach you anything about culture and how you need to act in front of your guests we have a, a two-week-long part of the program that's just uh seminar ethics okay ethics hmm. and there are ways you know becoming a good listener and determining what your customer really is telling you, what they really want. And part of it is pairing, part of it is their background knowledge with what wines. And also, you have to present options if they don't want to spend $80 on a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. You know, you, And someone will say to me, I've had a, a client once say, I really don't want to spend a lot of money on the wine. I said, let me give you some options. And I'll give them a $30 option, and I'll give them a $60 option of the same varietal from the same region. And many times they will find that the $30 bottle tastes just as good as the $60 bottle. Mm -hmm. We have wines in our fine wine room. There's one from California, Napa, and it's a Titus wine. It's $55 a bottle, which sounds like a lot, but it drinks better than any $300 bottle we have in our fine wine room, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I've been to the winery. I I know the winemaker, and I, I know the care he puts into this wine. So... A lot of times, the amount of money you spend on wine is not commensurate with the quality. It really isn't. Right. And we do wine seminars all the time where we'll charge 40 or $50 for a customer, and they'll get four bottles of wine, four for that price. And we'll throw in cheeses or chocolate. And so we've tr- worked really hard, and, and Tyler in particular works so hard at locating wines in that price point where we can bundle these four wines together and keep them under that price point. Mm-hmm. That's why we do so many fundraisers now for different nonprofits in the area because we can give them four really nice wines and they can still make money bringing people in. And it's been a very successful venture for us, the fundraisers. Doing them all the time. We have done in the last two years 120 seminars, 120, about two-thirds of them being virtual since the pandemic. And are you always the one hosting them? Always. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I have Tyler there, who is I need for tech support. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I have Rachel there, who's also for tech support. And, uh, oh, and then once in a while, we have other people. If we have 500 people at a show coming up, which we do, I love to see their faces on Zoom, but there's no way in the world I'm going to see 500 faces. So we'll have multiple uh, laptops. Oh, cool. So everybody's there. And they can ask questions. They can wave their hands. They can shout out. Or we have a chat room where they can just ask questions in the chat room. Because some people are overwhelmed by all the information you're telling about wine, and they don't want to ask a question. They don't want to sound silly. Mm-hmm. And so we just put it in the chat room, and I'll have them relay it to me, and we'll answer the question. That's Yeah, it's a, it's it's this whole separate business model that can be used to educate everybody from the comfort of their own home. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you bring up price point for wine because there's one bottle in particular that we've had a lot, um, but it's a Pinot and it's Mark West's Pinot Mm -hmm. and it's not overly expensive by any means Mm -hmm. and it drinks incredibly well and it It goes well with so many different meals it does and it's a great gift (laughs) so when the first time I had that I was like oh this is this is it like I I finally made I'm having a really good bottle of wine Mm -hmm. and then I went to the store like two days later just for grocery shopping and it was the Wegmans on Amherst and they have their own store uh, back when I lived in the city and I saw the price point Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, now I gotta buy it. Like, I can't. <laughs> it was too good of a wine not to buy. So it's basically a staple. Um, do you have one that's similar to that? Yes. Where? Okay. We have uh, probably five or six in that value price line mm-hmm. of each of the varietals. Okay. And there are hundreds of varietals. So if somebody wants a, let's say a Sauvignon Blanc, which is a very light, crisp, uh, acidy wine that's from primarily from France and New Zealand, a little bit of U.S and they don't want to spend $30, we can suggest one to them that's $10, and it's fabulous. So when we do these seminars, we try, we're very careful, Tyler's very careful, about bringing the right wines in so that these people are like, wow, this is great. How do you put this together for 50 bucks? 
So then they find out that, hey, they're like you. They're a very lucky person. They can find a value wine that they have fallen in love with. And you're a lucky man if you can find them, mm-hmm. you know. And we keep finding them over and over again. That's our problem <laughs> every day. You know, we have tastings. We had two tastings yesterday with vendors, and we had about 40 wines between the two. And we found four or five we absolutely fell in love with. And then some of them are $10 buy-in, $10 buy-ins. So that's a great one for us to have. We'll do it in a show, and then the next day the shelf will be empty. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. Now, how often, sorry, Derek, no, how, how often do you guys get shipments of wine? Because this place is like constantly moving products. It it's unbelievable. We have uh, Tuesday is the primary day for bringing trucks in. So okay. This is a madhouse on Tuesdays here. Just a madhouse. I kind of want to see it. Yeah. It is. There's so much wine that comes into this place. It's incredible how much wine we move. And so that's, they try and focus on that day, get extra help in here to get those pallets coming off mm-hmm. the trucks and stuff, and then getting them in the right place and hoping you don't break any. And uh, it's just a zoo. It's a zoo. But, and this room is, it's so nice in here tonight, but normally this is just stacked floor to ceiling with boxes going mm-hmm. out for seminars. So what are, your, what are your opinions on New York wine? We have a lot of different wine trails in really close to us, the Lake Erie Wine Trail in Niagara, mm-hmm. Finger Lakes. How do, you, how do you view those wines in comparison to the, other, the rest of them? That's a great question. I view them very favorably. Really? Now, I'm a little biased because I did work in a local winery at Freedom Run for three years. Oh, okay. And I made everything from crop to bottle. And so I was very involved with the whole process, and that was fun. And we created some beautiful wines. And this region has some of the best Rieslings and best Cab Francs around. Our region, uh, and Finger Lakes particularly, that topography there with the warming and cooling effect of those deep Finger Lakes creates an extraordinary region for growing wines. And those two varietals are doing extremely well, extremely well here. So I would take a Cab Franc from... from New York any day versus one from France. I would. And it's obviously very value-driven as well. And we're very fortunate to be within driving distance of so Mm -hmm. many incredible wineries there. So I'm a big fan of New York. People have this opinion that they're all sweet wines. They were 30 years ago. And ever since Dr. Franks uh, started creating these cabs that were dry, the world has changed. Now we have dry Rieslings. We have the dry Cabernet Francs. We have uh, dry Pinot Noirs, Pinot Griesling. Uh, and they're all due to the evolving of the Finger Lakes. And Niagara-on-the-Lake, across the way, has done the same thing. Uh, Wayne Gretzky opened up a beautiful winery there a few years ago. He's, his winemakers done a fabulous job of creating wines that you would not think were from Niagara-on-the-Lake. Mm-hmm. Granted, they're the king of ice wine up there, and that's great. But they have other wines that are, are simply extraordinary. You said Dr. Frank. Is that? Dr. Frank is the, one of the famous wineries in the Finger Lakes. And Dr. Frank himself was the guy who, he was a pioneer of vinification or winemaking 60 years ago. Mm. And is responsible for bringing a lot of the varietals to New York State from France. So he, he was a rock star. He was a New York State's rock star in wine. It's such an interesting dynamic when... The three of us will sit here and discuss how great things are, and then there's still that random outside perspective that people have where it's like, if I can drive to it, it can't be good. Right. It's like, right. what is that all about? Like, just because you can get there within two hours doesn't mean it's garbage. It's really disheartening because there's so much pride that's being taken in the product, and it's being shipped all over the place. And then even in Ohio, there's people in Ohio that are literally drive here mm-hmm. just for the wine and then they they try to figure out a way to back home safely <laughs> after drinking all the time but it's I, I don't know hopefully that perception is just, i mean changing but we'll see it's slowly evolving it really has i've seen just in the last three years since i've been working here we have a new york month of wine where we do a seminar with just new york state wines hmm. we had a niagara escarpment month it's just niagara county and people once they taste it then they're fans they are fans and uh, it's just getting them to taste it. So that's why I think it's our job to offer these nights. Welcome to New York State. Here's what we have. And that's what we did. We had a massive tasting here a few years ago. We tasted every region from New York State. And uh, oh, it, was, cool. it was so much fun. And really, we're just so lucky to have the Finger Lakes. And even the Niagara Scarpment. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous place. So when you went through your sommelier process again, there's an aspect to it that's tasting notes. There's uh, smelling notes and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you're 
giving recommendations to somebody on a bottle of wine. How in-depth do you go into that? Because everybody's palate is different. Right. It's very, very difficult. Generally, it's a, a brief overview of what the wine is based on what he's looking for. So if he tells me that, you know, I know I'm having a steak, but I, I don't like red wines, then I have to totally change mm-hmm. gears and then go to that white wine scenario we talked about before. What type of studying did you have to do to get your sensory up to par? Well, the best thing we did was our master Sam took us in the grocery store. We went down and sniffed every single fruit and vegetable, blindfolded. Nutmeg, man. I was, we were talking about this the other day. Just now, smelling spices. Now, hold on. I got, I got an off question. Now, you just, you, you just waltz into Wegmans and you start picking up all the friggin' produce? Like, how does this work? It does. It does. That's what they say to do, and it works. You, had, you need to identify those aromas, we call it the bouquet in wine, that are like the fruits and the vegetables and the seasonings and the minerals and all that different stuff that you see, that we need a way to classify that. And so there are literally hundreds of descriptors we use to describe the wine. So it's just, it, and it's hard to learn that. It is, mm-hmm. and I'm... Yeah, you're grossing everybody out of Wegmans. All the employees are staring at you. Here comes the next sommelier class, strolling in, grabbing all the produce. <laughs> well, it's funny because we've... We just had a review of a product recently that contained nutmeg in it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you've never had nutmeg before, you're not going to pick up a nutmeg smell because you don't right. know what that smells like. Exactly. So that exactly. process is pivotal to understanding all the different it's smells. Key. It's key. It is. And then sommeliers have to come up with names for these different smells, like toast. We call mm-hmm. one toast because it smells like burnt toast. And what it is, it's actually the wine reacting with the oak in a barrel. And the oak imparts that toasting mm-hmm. essence. So you have to know this has toast or smoke. So lots of different lots of different terms you have to know. So I have to ask, you being a sommelier, what made you stick with a liquor store and not go into the restaurant industry? Family. Okay. Uh, this place has the most extraordinary family running it. And they are so well respected in this community. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be here forever. I mean, you can come in here if you ever have a problem or a question about a wine or anything this is the place to be and i i bought all my wines from way back in the first store he had on north french road and it's always been a pleasure to be here so i'm very proud to be part of mm-hmm. this this uh, association here and plus having all the kids in school it's just now i'm drinking wine with them I mean, how crazy is that right so it's just that, that's a double-edged sword that's what that is yeah. like you're excited about it but you're also like damn i'm old yeah, yeah. the how many liquor stores in the area have a sommelier there there can't many. be many, yeah. No, not many. So you truly are getting a unique experience when you come into Addie's. You are. We talk about Addie's all the time because we just love them too, but there's so much more that this place offers outside of just picking up a bottle of wine. So you it have is. to come here. It is. And you think about the, just this room and what this room provides. It's such a critical service for people who want to learn about wine. Mm-hmm. And who has a room like this? Mm-hmm. I mean, I do PowerPoint presentations on that screen over there. I'll bring in videos, I'll have audio, I'll have lined up uh, hors d'oeuvres and charcuterie tables outside, and it's just an event. It's an experience that everybody loves. And we'll dim the lights. We'll have wine bottles with candles in them, and mm-hmm. they'll be all over the place. And it's just like going to a fine dining restaurant, and you're learning, and it's not expensive. And the open ones, before COVID, were free. Mm-hmm. You know, and they fill up like that. So we'd have to have a second night, third night. <laughs> It's still fun, but we're just lucky to have this room. I mean, this is so Mm -hmm. beautiful to have this. Right. Not many wine stores have one of these in Western New York. Uh, You guys are grateful to have this. Yeah, and you're utilizing everything you have, Mm -hmm. which is nice. It's not just wasted space. There isn't, there's no way to waste space here. Either a truck is showing up, dropping off payouts because it's moving too quick, or the tasting room is busy with 500 people's zooms. It's It's, insane. It is. It's unbelievable. And like I said before, we'll do a tasting what we do um, a lot of big corporations will do their corporate tasting and especially over the holidays because they couldn't have Christmas parties so uh, they would have hire us we would do the celebration for them and all these people are at home in their own home enjoying these wines they don't have to go driving anywhere afterwards and so it took off like crazy in December to do all these private shows and the same with the fundraisers you know if people can enjoy wine and who's ever hosting the fundraiser can still make money so it's uh it's been a win-win for everybody. Yeah. It really has. And it's not slowing down at all. At all. It it's picking up. good, though. It's great because we have the same regulars we've had coming for two years. Mm-hmm. And we, they're like friends of ours, you know. And it's almost like a wedding celebration. We have all these people <laughs> in the same room. But uh, it's, it's been great. It really has. This is the only place I would work. Yeah. Well, that's good. 
So what advice would you have for somebody that wanted to become a sommelier? Mm -hmm. I would talk to a lot of different people who are Psalms. I would do research online deciding how much of a time commitment and a monetary commitment you want to make to it. It is not cheap to become a Psalm. Uh, and then you can actually go visit the different wine schools or you can visit uh, the associations or get information sent to you. And then you can see what's involved by watching a psalm and, and look at his books. I should have brought in some books for you guys. They're like phone books. And so you decide how much time you want to spend, how much money you want to spend. It will take a year out of your life, in my opinion, to learn as much as you need to know to become an adequate psalm, adequate, a year. And it's, like I said, I studied every day, every day. And I tasted tons and tons of wines. So, um, so that it's, a, it's a fun thing to do, but you do have to do your research first and be aware that it is a, a commitment to go for a serious one like mm -hmm. the Court of Master Sommeliers. Mm -hmm. You can get a weekend thing like any other thing, but to get a, a serious uh, training program, it does take your time. Yeah, those weekend things, do they, what do they teach you then? If, because if you're, take, if you're saying that it's going to take a year and someone's doing it a weekend, there has to be some. There is. Yeah, yeah. yeah this they, is a red, this is a white. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, but Yeah, and then they give you your diploma on Sunday night. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so, But you can tell right away who the real signs sure. are right away. So, wow. And there aren't many. We have, we have a couple level twos studying for the level threes here in Western Europe, but we don't, we don't have any master signs here. Closest would be New York and Chicago. And we have one, actually, my instructor in my class who is a master uh, is from the Finger Lakes. Mm. And so the Finger Lakes has one. Well, you're going to be the first one in the area. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too old. Maybe Tyler. I can see Tyler yeah. doing this because he's almost where I'm at right now and he's a kid so he's got his whole life to do this that's awesome it is yeah, really good for him did you ever think about doing any certifications of like whiskey or anything like that i am so busy just trying to learn sure. the wines absolutely I don't have time tyler focuses more on whiskey yeah he's really into that very much so but there's just so much for me to know with wine i mean i'll just pick up a book for fun and just start reading about some topic mm -hmm. in wine and uh, it's overwhelming but it's fun yeah yeah. Well, perfect. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, thank you for being on. This was extremely exciting. A lot I did not know. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it was hard. It's like, I just want to sleep. <laughs> well, seriously, thank you very much for your time. If You're any welcome. of you are interested, come to Addie's Wine and Liquor and come hit him up because he'll give you whatever you need to know and give you some great recommendations. Absolutely. Process. Stop on by. Thank you very thank much you for being guys. on. Appreciate thank you, guys. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.